I joined college like right around the time that people were taking their computers to class. So I, you know, I can type faster than I can write. And I never developed, I was never like taught how to develop and I never developed a shorthand mm-hmm. writing style. Um, but man, it was so messed up how people taught stuff because every professor was different with like, I'm just going to give you the PowerPoint we're going over so you can take notes on that. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's like kind of helpful. And then the other ones are like, I'm not going to give you any of this stuff. And so it's like, okay, so I'm just, I'm not hearing anything you're saying. I'm just writing down the slide because you're not going to post this after. And then other people, there was one that was like, I'm grading your notes where I'm going to give you the PowerPoint, but there's blanks in it. Oh, see if you're actively listening in class. But you're not listening. You're just scanning. You're, you're like trying so hard the... to fill out all the blanks. Yeah. <laughs> God, people, those professors, I don't know how you get a professor job like that, but just do something that's <laughs> trying to help people learn. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with the code. I'd imagine things are so much more interactive now like it was my senior year of college when things were first really getting on like online where oh you could go and see like what the assignment was for this week in your paleontology class like on in an online forum um and so and then there were even like things we had to turn in to the online portal and stuff like that but up, oh, in, yeah. up until then like There were people who brought their laptops and stuff to class, but there was no Wi-Fi on campus. So it's not like you were, you know, getting anything from the professor unless like the professor gave you, you know, like a a CD-ROM or a flash drive or something with it on it. Um, So it was really just if you were using your word processor to type rather than like just taking handwritten notes like everyone else was. You weren't really shortcutting to like some really cool, <laughs> like, ooh, right. I've got like, I've got Wikipedia and all this other source material, things all open on my computer at once where I'm cross referencing things and, you know, building what my, you know, putting these little uh, bookmarks aside for what I need for the paper that's going to be in the, at the midterm point. You know, I'm, I'm already like sourcing my material while I'm going through the lecture of class and yeah, none of yeah. that type of thing. I had, um, I mean, I, I had like such a mix and, you know, Baylor is probably such a weird place anyways, but there was like one professor, I think I've told it before, but there was a guy that he, he, I can't remember. I think it was physics too. He was out of town at a conference for like the first week and a half of class. 
Um, and he, so he had his like TA uh, introducing the class and the course and going mm-hmm. over whatever and uh, just getting into the subject a little bit. And so it was like the day that you could drop the class that he came back. Like, you know, you could how you could drop it and then like switch. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, you would only drop it and get like a F or whatever. Yeah, you could drop early and it wouldn't go against your grade. And you could drop at a certain point and get refunded for the tuition. But if you missed that day, then you still had to pay for the whole class, even if you dropped it. Yeah, yeah. And um, he came in. <laughs> he, he came in and was like, rule one. There are no computers in this class. Rule two, <laughs> there are no phones in this class. And Ooh. then he goes, you up there with the newspaper. Put it away. You are not reading newspaper in my class. Like, <laughs> who the hell is reading a newspaper? <laughs> so he also had poor vision, I guess. <laughs> and he like introduced himself and then like spent 45 minutes talking about the conference he went to. And there was like, and we will break for five minutes and then we will get into the material and like half the class like just left. Just bailed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Me being one of them. Yeah, I, I always love that first week of class. Oh, shit, I'm going to drop two of these. I'm going to need to pick up two more. Let's see which classes are still open that I can pick up here. <laughs> yeah. Man, I got I almost got screwed, too, uh, for whatever reason at Baylor for my year there was like an abundance of chemistry students and you know the way that all of the the courses work whether you're doing like chemistry or I think physics you also have to take biology I mean everyone has to take like some science classes you know yeah yeah um but you you do like take some of the intro to all the other stuff just so you can kind of learn how everything works together and uh for biology students we obviously had to take, um, you know, chem one and two, and then organic chemistry one and two, and an organic organic chemistry lab, and um, and those were like the basic requirements. If you got a BS, you had to do some other advanced ones. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and you also had to do biochemistry, uh, which was a terrible class. And because I staggered my courses in a certain way, where I was like, okay, I'm going to only take for at least the first semester, one science class, because I don't want to like overload. This is dense material, you know, Um, and biology intro to biology is super easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was fine. Then the next semester, I think I picked up like uh, maybe physics or chemistry or something. But whenever I got to like my senior year, or going into my senior year, I had I still had like the OCHEM 2 to take. And I think I had to skip a semester because it was booked up with chemistry students who get priority for yeah, yeah, yeah. the chemistry classes. And I like went to the registrar and was like, I need to get this class. Like it's not even offered the second semester or the first semester. So I have to do it my spring semester, but it's like book. Maybe it was my final semester. And they're like, well... You can always just delay your graduation and, and take it. <laughs> take over it the in summer. the summer. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. like, who the hell are you 
like what <laughs> that is so insane to me like yeah you're just gonna graduate late because we screwed up with the number of professors we got yeah that there was a similar crisis to that at at utd but it was it came down to your physical education credits that you had to get Oh, wow. So there was like one, you know, everyone had to take whatever, three hours, I think, a minimum of three hours, depending on what your major was. And so the the class, there were two classes that everyone wanted to take that had, you know, nothing to do with anything else, you know, your one-off class to meet the requirement. One was bowling, and that was like the coolest class that everyone wanted to get into. And then two was uh, lifeguard swimming. So it's not like athletic swimming. It's like you go to the empty pool at the empty um, student athletic center and then you do some like lifeguard training. You like learn CPR or whatever. But that you leave with like a like as a certified lifeguard, but you also get your course credit for your PE. Yeah. And that shit would always fill up. And it was always like seniors were like, oh shit, I forgot about my fucking. <laughs> oh yep. man, I'm, I'm one semester before graduation. I hope I can squeeze into this class. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I, my PE credits were great. I did uh, Tai Chi, um, intro to tennis, which I had like played tennis um, for fun, like in high school and stuff. So that was a breeze. And uh, then I did like mountain biking one and two. Okay. Um, and Waco has like some kind of mountain bike trails. You, um, can, you can sneak down to a little bit of the hills, a little south of town. Yeah. A little west of town. Yeah. It's not too bad. Um, but man, I went with one of my friends like near the end of our second semester of the mountain biking. So he was like, you know, I grew up, I did like BMX and stuff. Mm-hmm. when I was younger. Um, and then in college, I still rode like a BMX bike. So I was very versed <laughs> on bikes. Um, and I thought everyone was. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> if you got to take biking in college, maybe those are people who hadn't ever learned how to ride a bike. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, we went riding uh, and we like did one of the trails and there was like kind of a kind of a jump but it's not like it was not huge especially for a mountain bike you know Mm -hmm. and boy did he miscalculate off the ramp and just like (laughs) like (laughs) i mean i just heard it so i can only imagine what happened but he like stuck the front wheel nice (laughs) nice (laughs) just flying over the handlebars bent the front wheel on like a bike that i'm pretty sure like the the professor had bikes you could like rent for the class if you didn't own one. Mm-hmm. And he had like purchased it near like at the beginning of the semester, just like, okay, I'll have this at the end. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I like mountain biking and just fucked up the, <laughs> the front rim so bad. <laughs> he was messed up too. Uh didn't break anything, but you know, everyone's gotta go uh, head first over the handlebars at least once before they really know how to ride a bike. Like yeah, I mean, it happens. If you haven't if you haven't been shirtless, you know, riding around in your cul-de-sac, you know, barefoot on your bike and then uh caught it in the uh in the grass on the median next to the sidewalk when you tried to pop the curb and then just flew right over the handlebars and just skinned your whole chest and elbows up on the asphalt as you went over, 
you know, yeah. that's that's how you really know that you're into that you're a good you're a good biking <laughs> once yeah. you've had a few of those. <laughs> that's like the it reminds me of the quote from the skateboarder <laughs> who was like, you know, you got to remember most people they have like one or two bad falls in their life. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I I was like bombing a hill with some friends on a skateboard like in middle school and it was like it was like down it was in a neighborhood and the hill went down between houses and then there was like a four lane with a median road that was like you know kind of the connector thing and then you went into more houses mm-hmm. and uh there was a car coming and in my head I'm like they definitely see us I can tell they're slowing down and my friend freaked out jumped off his board put his foot right in front of my board and oh. i just slid across two of the lanes oh. that's one way to fuck just i i hope i don't get hurt what, <laughs> what if i just crash intentionally yeah. now <laughs> <clears throat> yeah i i was that was back when i wore a spike belt and on one side they were all like ground down nice, flat nice. which was so it's like you, know, you had you had a little armor on you know yeah 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 <laughs> and the spitfire shirt i was wearing too had holes that lined up with the spikes like where it was also just burned through i wore that shirt until it fell apart the the belts you know back then the pleather belts would just break oh yeah yeah you yeah you just so. br- they break right in half yeah especially yeah. once it got dried out or if you ever like Got it really sweaty, and then it dried yep. out, and then it would just pop real fast. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> when you're putting it on, and yeah. then you're like I don't have another belt. I have this one. And it, or it, I would always break like around where the 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 holes were for the for the belt. You know, the the holes on yeah. the one end. It would always like get crusty right at that hole, and when you went to pull it tight, that whole part end of the belt would break off. Yeah. 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 yeah belts, my huh? my. Uh, one of my, not gruesome, but like f- funnier BMX accident stories was I was just riding, we had, we lived on a cul-de-sac, so I was just riding circles in the cul-de-sac, you know, going pretty fast, but... Working on your flatland? It kind of, you know, working on, you know, how, how high can I pop my bunny hops and, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Could I, can I ride, you know, a quarter of the circle around just on my on my nose and then can I ride a quarter of the circle around just on my just on a wheelie and stuff like that um but at the same time um our neighbor like two houses down around the the cul-de-sac was they were going to repaint their house and this was my like best friend's house he's like the best man of my wedding and stuff but like his dad was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam And so, and he worked nights. And so we were always kind of terrified over at their house during the daytime when we were playing, like if we would ever wake him up, (laughs) like he would, this like, you know, insane man would come out screaming at us, you know, you know, maybe, uh, maybe in a flashback mode and it would be really bad. Yeah. So anyway, he had backed his truck out of the driveway um, while I had been going around in circles, he had backed his truck out of the driveway to paint the house. And I had not paid attention to the fact that he had backed the bed of the pickup truck out past the driveway. So it was like hanging out, you know, about four feet into the street. 
um because i was just focused on my tricks i was just like <laughs> staring yeah, basically yeah. right down at my front tire the whole time i'm riding around thinking there's nothing in front of me that's going to be a problem um so on one of these laps after he had backed the tr- truck out i did not have my head up i was just looking straight down at my front tire thinking about okay what do i do next if i like you know do i try to do i try to pull up and then i do a bar spin or what am i what am i going to work on next and uh I just front-ended right into the back tire uh, of that truck that was parked out, and my head went straight over the handlebars right into the rear uh, wheel fender. Oh. <laughs> and it dented the whole fender of that Ford F-150 in. Oh <laughs> like it had been hit with a bowling ball. Like the whole thing like just caved in. And uh, I ended up in the bed of the truck, and my bike ended up like flat on the ground next to the truck. And so he heard it because it sounded like, you know, a cannon had gone <laughs> off. And uh, and like I knew that he had heard it because he was up on a ladder, you know, painting the house. And so I was like, oh, shit. So I jumped out of the back of the truck and just ran into my house. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was so scared that he was about to like scream at me or, you know, ring me out or whatever. And, uh, you know, about five minutes later, there's a knock on the door and my parents answer the door and they're like, hey, Josh, uh, Mr. Osborne's here. <laughs> he just wants to see if you're okay. And I was like, I'm fine. Just yelling from the back of the house. I don't need to come to the door. <laughs> but he had walked my bike over and everything. He's like, I saw that dent you left in my car. And I I just couldn't believe that you it didn't knock you out. <laughs> you were fine. <laughs> I, I had like knew exactly what had happened. The adrenaline was f- running so fast. That it only was like an, about a half hour later where I was like, holy crap, my neck is fucked. My head is fucked. Because <laughs> uh, I was just riding so high. Oh, man. It's so high on fear. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's terrible. I One last bike thing. You know, did you ever try it going just real fast in the cul-de-sac? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And your pedal catches yeah yeah and you just go flying the opposite way just goom (laughs) well and the uh we uh we like the you know you try to get real angled down lean right you know real real you're cutting those corners um so you'd sometimes you'd have to really get good with making sure that the pedal on the inside when you're cutting is high because if that mm-hmm. pedal's low when you're going down and you're cutting that corner, then that the edge of that pedal will really grab the ground and that'll fuck you up. But yeah, we would do tons of fucking stupid shit on that cul-de-sac because it was a cul-de-sac. You could build ramps and like all types of things and like launch yourself into the neighbor's yard and just land in the grass as you were trying to do whatever, like a 360 uh, or, a, or a crazy bar spin that you knew you couldn't land. So you just bail at the last second and land in their yard. And then that person would <laughs> yeah. get mad at you for tearing up their yard, putting divots all in their grass. Yeah, those cool times. Listen, you want dead kids or what? <laughs> Yeah, why don't you go do that on the highway? <laughs> oh, man. Well, good episode. Yep, we did a great job. So, uh, real quick before we before we get into lungs, um, last night was the first uh, IJB live show since, you know, before the pandemic. So... It's got it's like close to three years <laughs> thinking yeah. about it now. But it also made me realize that, oh wow, 
I'd never gone, we'd never gone to like an IJB live show since we started doing this podcast. <laughs> and we've been doing this podcast yeah, for yeah. so long now. And so it was weird going there. And then like a bunch of the people there that used to always see at the IJB show were like, oh, hey, yeah. What's Eric like? He's really cool. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've never <laughs> ever talked to any of you people about the podcast that we do. So you guys just must listen to it because you listen to IJB and I have no I've never had any interactions with these people about like the actual podcasting. So it was cool to see a bunch of those a bunch of those folks out last night. Hadn't seen them in so long. And it's cool to know that they uh, they've, they've actually listened to a few of our episodes and even bought some of your paintings. So that was that was, yes, that that was, was neat. Yeah, I typically keep it, you know, um, unless they post about it, I don't say it just because I don't know if what they're if they want to keep it quiet or whatever. But yeah, that is that is pretty cool. I would imagine. I mean, did you meet anybody that you had like known? I mean, I guess you would know if people, you know, listen to the podcast, but. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, was there somebody that you're, they're like, yeah, oh, yeah there were, there were, a, there were a few people there that it was like, even maybe their first time where they had only come out to like one or two of the old IJB live shows from years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and so I had never actually met or interacted with them and they said that they listened to the show. It was, it was also kind of tough cause we're all hanging out in the back patio behind twilight and it's dark outside at, you know, <laughs> 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and everyone's just kind of standing in a circle, so I can't really tell who's talking or when they're talking. Um, uh, so I'm just, like, going off of the feedback as everyone's kind of riffing around and, and talking about stuff. But I know, you know, I at least talked to Ryan and Matt and Clint and Russ. Ah, uh, God, I'm probably forgetting a few people. Uh, I had I had some good one-on-ones with quite a few people last night, so it was really cool seeing seeing everyone out and... Um, can't wait to do it again. That was really neat. How was the video TC was putting together? Oh, you know, I don't want to spoil that on our show. It was, it was good. I, oh, I couldn't see it. did they have it. it on the episode? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, I'm, I mean, oh, they okay. recorded it, so it's probably on the episode, but like, um, they didn't have like a big screen or anything at Twilight. They just have the little bar TVs. And so it was being fed to those bar TVs. So I couldn't really tell what was going on, but, um, our friend Gustav was uh, was doing the uh, audio descriptions for me what, with what was on the screen. But then I think it was either something happened about 40, 40% into the video and either TC's battery or, or laptop died oh, no. or something. But I, we only we only <laughs> saw we only saw about the first half, I think, of what what the whole thing was supposed to be. Oh, I'm sure there was a big payoff. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I, I, he, TC did say that he's going to post it onto the social medias at some point so that everyone can see his masterpiece because he had worked so hard on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he wasn't yeah. gonna, he wasn't gonna let it go to waste. So no, it'll be can't. out there. It'll be out there for you. If if okay, if, if if anyone was uh, aware of the Kurt Schilling QAnon video that went around, you know, midway through the pandemic, um. That that's that's sort of the jumping off point for uh, TC's video. Okay. Um, Kurt Schilling is a football announcer. No, 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 oh. no, no. Baseball player. He's a pitcher. Pitched for the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees. Uh, uh, that's why. That's why I don't know him. You know, 
diehard Rangers fan here. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's famously known for uh, the the bloody sock game against the Yankees. Pitcher with the bloody sock. Even though people think that that's probably a hoax that he dyed his own sock to make himself look tough. <laughs> Why do you have a bloody sock? Did he get spiked or whatever? Uh, no, he's I, he had like stitches on the inside of his heel at some point for something. I forget what the reason was, but Kurt Schilling's always like a, been a narrative whore. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it would not be surprising that he would take a moment that would be all about like one team overcoming incredible adversity and make it all about just his personal journey of overcoming adversity. <laughs> yeah. I had adversity in the gym earlier. I banged my shin oh, into nuts. the rowing machine. Oh. So. I can understand, you know. I don't even understand. feel my shins anymore, Eric. So much banging. Yeah, I just, I just, they, they just lead the way into whatever destruction that I'm, oh, <laughs> that I'm going into any room. So it's kind of like, okay, I, that's how I find where all coffee tables are located <laughs> in yep, anyone's yep. house. So I don't know. I don't even feel it anymore. Yeah, my my shins have taken a beating. I luckily have a high enough pain tolerance that I. I would imagine it might be similar where you're just kind of like, okay, that hurts, but we're just going to yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Um, yeah. Th- th- yeah. The no, no shin injury though is as bad as the BMX uh, shin injury when the, uh, when the pedals spin back on you and crack you in the shin because your foot slips off the pedal and the thing yep. whips back around and you catch like <laughs> all that cleat of the pedal right into the meat of your shin and just takes I, a nice chunk right out. I, had, I still have a scar from when I, riding home from school, jumped off. Like the way that the curbs were in part of our neighborhood was like the, the slopey ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like the sigmoid. Those are the ones that you're looking thing. for, the natural yeah, ramps. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, I did that where my, you know, the ball of my foot wasn't quite centered on the pedal. So right when I landed after jumping, <laughs> it whipped back around. Uh, and, yeah, those are absolutely the worst. The The two worst shin injuries are that and then getting a line drive right back at your shins. If you're pitching in baseball or softball and you have no time. I would imagine to that's terrible. Those, those two are the worst. If, if you can like get up and walk after either of those than any other shin injury you'll have in your whole life, you're pretty much not even going to feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, man, I was like two minutes from my house and blood had already, hey, Kurt Schilling, blood had uh, already pulled down my shin and was like circled around my my uh, audio, you know, big chunky shoes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And my uh, socks. A lot, a lot of, a lot of bleeding that can happen around a shin, you know, for something that you seem, it's like, man, the bone's right there. And it doesn't seem yeah. like there's like an artery that would be running right on between my skin and this bone, but good Why don't God, we just they have bleed armor. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, blood is a very important thing. It is. It is. Respiration. Um, and you know, uh, from, from an evolutionary standpoint, the other cool thing about the research on this one is that we've talked about the heart, we've talked about, you know, the electron transport chain, we've talked about some of these processes and, and kind of abstract ways in other episodes, but this one, you know, we really get to talk about the fact that like the heart and vascular system is like a thing that exists 
evolutionarily way before the any lungs show up but it seems it's one of those like creation uh myth things where you know uh your creationist will talk about well how can you have a heart without lungs and how can you have lungs without a heart someone had to design those at the same time to work in concert together and you're like no they could be separated by hundreds of millions of years (laughs) you ever seen a fish (laughs) (laughs) jesus famous for fish (laughs) Yeah, the I don't know if you've like I mean, you know, we're not covering hearts, but I don't know if you've have you ever looked at um just the different types of hearts that exist like in fish or in alligators and or maybe crocodiles and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's another example of how like one thing has evolved separately in un- unrelated organisms many different times to to provide the same kind of function. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Like, especially, I, I think it, it might be crocodiles. I can't quite remember, but they have like a, a three chamber heart, but they, there's like a piece of it that kind of goes up where it's, it's, you can tell like evolution wise, it's like going to form yeah, four yeah. chambers. Like it's like a flap in the middle. So it helps, you know, separate the unoxygenated and oxygenated blood um, so that there's like a little bit of a difference whereas a like a fish heart is like two chambers i think Mm -hmm. so it's just going in like one motion um which you know our heart could do like if it pumped it to the lungs and then from the lungs went to the rest of your body but going against that pressure is going to be weird and you'd have weird stuff going on right it's hard to imagine an organism that would have evolved evolved respiration before vascular system. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't make any sense. It's another one of those evolutionary quirks of uh, the reason why uh, you know everything here on Earth. If even if you like zoom, once you zoom out a little bit, like lots of unrelated things look really similar, is <laughs> because yeah. we all started with a very basic toolkit. And it's not like at some point when we like reach halfway through evolution, we're like, okay, now we can get rid of all that toolkit and get this new fancy toolkit that's like real advanced. It's, no, you're still stuck with just the same stupid, shitty toolkit that everyone started with, which is why, like, I mean, it's it's why uh, we can evolve flight, but no one, no organism like evolved a like a rotary spinning helicopter system. <laughs> no, <Nope. laughs> like that that just would not work physiologically, in with any of the building blocks that we have to create any organism. Like nothing is going to make like a a spinning gyro that f- works inside of a living organism. Yeah, the I mean, you know, except for those seeds that fall, but that's kind of just yeah. a a quirk. Um, I love those things. Um, yeah, the the evolution of it is is very interesting just because it gives you the... You can really zoom out on these two things and see how life through evolution finds ways to like make all of that stuff work that is left over, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's not like, again, you know, I always stress it, but it's not like a plan that they're like, okay, we have this system. What else can we add to it? It's just that through random mutations and stuff, you start to form whatever. And then the more successful one 
tends to take over and dominate because uh, that animal can do whatever. And when you're looking at like respiration, which, you know, we we spoke about this. Oh, God, it's over half of the podcast ago. The <laughs> electron transport chain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's episode 43. Um, and that's the electron transport chain and mitochondria is that's where you get power in your cells to, you know, so the cells can do stuff. And by power, it's, it's this molecule ATP that like is needed to bind to a bunch of different proteins because it then changes the shape of the protein so that they can, you know, attach to something or detach to something from something or allow something to go through it or whatever. And oxygen is vital for that oxygen is needed to like pass these electrons down in order for this atp to be created so it can then be spent as an energy source Mm -hmm. so it's always funny to me thinking of respiration that like we're breathing in i don't know because it's not food it's weird to imagine it is required for energy yeah (laughs) We're, we're, we're eating a bunch of oxygen. <laughs> yeah. We're gulping up as much of it as we can. Our body's filtering out all the stuff that's not the, the, the prime fucking rocket fuel. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so weird to me to be like, this is meant for energy, not, you know, what else would it be used for? But yeah, it's, it's strange. Well, that, that, made, that made a lot of sense when I was watching the second crash course video again refresher on respiration um because one of the things that i had always wondered about was uh you know the uh uh, passing out so like when i when i play when i play music like i often will scream you know during songs and like some songs like you might have to hold a scream out for a while because that's like the way the song is and um, I notice, especially like when I'm playing live um, and, you know, you're all your juices are up and you're really giving it your all um, like I'll hold I'll be holding a note out and then I can feel myself starting to pass out like I can feel it happening. I'd be like, OK, my my arms are getting really heavy, you know, as I'm oh, still no. trying to play guitar and I'm like, I just got to hold it out a little longer. Just keep holding it out. You can, you can hold it out to the end of this next measure without passing it out, without passing out, you know, but you feel like your whole body going, you, you know, it's about to happen. And then you're like, start gasping for air afterwards and it doesn't really fix it Yeah, right away. And you're like, Oh, why, why is, why isn't it going away? I'm breathing now. I'm breathing now. I'm, I'm not holding this note anymore. Why am I still feeling like, Oh, if I take one, one weird step, I might just stumble over on my face <laughs> on this middle of the stage. And that has more to do with the, the CO2 levels. Um, and because of the, the way that the respiration works with, uh, the gas transfer, like you have to have these different pressures in order to, force uh force oxygen through one way and have co2 come out the other way and if you exhale out all your co2 it doesn't matter if you're like breathing in oxygen you don't have the right pressure differential to have that gas exchange anymore so then you know the on crash course they they explain that's why when you're hyperventilating or when you're passing out why they give you like a brown paper sack to breathe into 
is because you need to breathe back in all of your CO2. You don't need the oxygen right now. You actually need to get that CO2 back in your system so you can return the pressure in, into this way that it can force back and forth the oxygen and CO2 gas transfer because the pressure is out of whack and you cannot transfer oxygen. So it doesn't matter how much oxygen you gulp in, you're still going to pass out. Yeah, it's I, I love like the respiration system because it ties together so much of science. Like you have so much chemistry involved in it when it comes to just these like gases that are exchanging and then the different like types of, um, you know, the, the chemical changes in the molecules and everything like that, that is vital to this entire system. And then you also have all of these organ systems working together. Like you have what the, you have the respiration system, the circulatory, the nervous system, and your and, muscular system, you got your diaphragm yeah. that's required in order to create like the, the negative pressure differential just to be able to take a breath. Yeah. And then, you know, you could add in the skeletal system, like if you're talking about the red blood cells being made. So it like it really combines all of the things together in a way that makes this very cool picture in my head because you can it's one of those things like um, have you seen like those AI art pieces where it just like keeps zooming in on stuff? Okay, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like, that's how it feels. You can look at, you know, a person breathing and describe that, and you can zoom in all the way down to the chemicals that are exchanging. Mm. And it works that way, too. Like, when you go back evolutionarily, you can talk about just the diffusion of gases whenever we're talking about, you know, like, bacteria or whatever, like, early, early life. Oh, yeah. And then you get to okay, well, things can't get very big if we're dealing with diffusion because it's that's just going against a concentration gradient where like oxygen in a high concentration wants to just move to a low concentration so it evens out. And, you know, you, you could talk about physics at that point. If yeah, you yeah, you can really get into like entropy and physics at that point. When it's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I love it. And so then you get the system where it's like, okay, well, let's, let's find a way where we can move this oxygen around the body. So then you get, you know, the circulatory system and then it's like, well, instead of just having like this, uh, these chemicals diffuse across the entire body, what if we localize it to a spot and you can get like gills and then, you know, you get to lungs, which are just gills on the inside mm -hmm. and it's, or you have I both. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like like the the early tetrapods you know that's the whole deal is they they get both you know they got to gulp the air because the the oxygen uh content of the shallow seas gets so low because of algae blooms that explode uh all over all over the planet um and they suck up all the oxygen out of the oceans and uh out of the freshwater pond life so yeah. even if you are a fish that's got great gills you're dying because you can't you can't just breathe water anymore because all the algae t and bacteria took it took it all right so it's it's one of those things where it um it's it's just nice it's like a such a clean picture whenever you're not looking at it from like a creationist standpoint like it's just so 
clean to view all of this stuff through. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I've ever mentioned, but back when I was like still under the impression that I would go to medical school, um, pulmonology was the, if I was going to go into a specialty, that's the one I was looking at. Cause I just, I love lungs. Um, I don't really care about the heart too much. It's very basic. Do you find it interesting that this one they go with the Latin for the name of the of the field of biological study and medical application? Like they could have called it uh, pneumonology if they would have gone Greek, I guess. Yeah, I wonder. Um, I do not. I have never considered that, but I wonder why they chose that. Um, I feel like probably in other languages they might have. Well, and it's one, it's one because it's like, it's talked about so much in both Latin and Greek that we have a lot of kind of ubiquitous terms that are either Greek or Latin founded for any stuff that goes with the lungs that sometimes we use the Greek stuff and other times we use the Latin stuff. We're just jack of all trades. We'll call it (laughs) pneumonia. Sure. That sounds cool. Pneumonia is somewhere with your lungs. I mean, yeah, pulmonia doesn't really (laughs) grip you, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's, I mean, isn't, no, that's the flu. Never mind. It's about to talk about Spanish. (laughs) Stupid, by the way. Um, So I think when we talk about like human lungs, I don't know, did you want to cover any anatomy it is kind of uh yeah let, we can do some we can do just like the basic rundown anatomy um like you have two two setups the upper respiratory system and the lower respiratory system so like the upper respiratory system would be like all the stuff that has outward contact with the world to draw in like oxygen and exhale so like your nose and your mouth and is does that include uh, your esophagus and your uh trachea too that's all upper respiratory until it branches right until your trachea yeah. branches and then that ever after the branch that's when it all becomes lower respiratory uh yeah i suppose i don't know i actually don't know um because i would always say like an upper respiratory infection would be like you would consider your bronch bronchi mm-hmm. as part of an upper upper respiratory I don't know. I always feel like just kind of based off of where it is in the body, like the if it's in the lobes, like the higher part of the lobes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I don't yeah. even know if you can actually feel that. <laughs> I always feel like I feel that, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I the fluids all way up here in my chest. Right, it's not right, in my yeah. bottom lungs by my by my diaphragm because we all know our lungs are just big empty hollow sacks that just water can just <laughs> right. sit in. It's like a water balloon. <laughs> yeah, my grandfather would definitely try to cough in a certain way to like you know move it around but he don't you, don't he you hear it rattling he, around in there just bouncing <laughs> around in that big empty empty chamber in my chest he had he would always claim that he had like um chronic bronchitis because his father was hit with mustard gas in world uh-huh. war one okay um you know <laughs> that is that, is, that would him. be a weird genetic passage but. <laughs> but well you see and i think he was born by the time his dad was in world war or maybe his dad dad brought the mustard gas home was like if i had to do it you got to do it mustard yeah wait maybe not um (laughs) yeah right in the face (laughs) yeah (laughs) he brought a little sample yeah a little sampler (laughs) this is what i had to deal with 
<laughs> this is for Flanders. You think you're so um, tough? So, and that's why I became a preacher. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think the the branching is like when you think of branching, you think like okay, it then kind of pours into an area like like a river or whatever. Yeah. And any image you also look at is not doing it full justice because it just keeps branching until it gets to like, you know, they call it your air sacs, the alveoli. Yeah. But they're just little clusters of grape-like things that have larger surface area because they're essentially spheres. They're your hemorrhoids the, of your lungs. Yes. They are the Dave Lane specialty. <laughs> um, and the... The branching gets to such a point where it's so thin that it is it the the alveoli is like they're all single celled depth, um, which happens a lot in your body. Like, you know, we think of our circulatory system. You think of the heart, maybe the aorta if you're a you know rebel, um, but you think of your jugular vein or whatever, and you think of these big things that are moving blood around but really because diffusion as we mentioned earlier um the movement of those gases just against concentration or with concentration gradients from high concentration to low concentration that has to occur at such small close scales that like your capillaries get to a point where they're one cell wide and only one cell of a red blood cell can go through at one time. If it's oriented in the right way, <laughs> like, because <laughs> yes. a, a red blood cell is not a dot. It is a shaped like a, like a river raft, you know? Yes. It's got to go in uh, the right way. If it's going to fit in those little capillaries at the very smallest point. And that's why, you know, you can expand on this so much, but that's why like sickle cell anemia is um, so dangerous because those red blood cells clog up those tiny little capillaries and over time you get to where there's not oxygen getting to where it needs to go Um, it's one of the reasons why i don't why i uh don't take caffeine uh why is that because the caffeine can disrupt the uh blood flow to those of smallest little capillaries in your inner ear and your fingertips and other places on your body um and uh so for certain people, you can either like take lots of pills to prevent that from happening and continue to drink caffeine, or you can just be like, well, maybe I'll just try not caffeine. Yeah, I you you did convince me to switch to non-caffeine um, just because caffeine doesn't really affect me in that much anyways, so why would I be downing it um, when and, it definitely affects me health-wise? Right, and you, I mean, if you're going to do it just you might as well just get rid of that and do like way way cooler more fun stimulants (laughs) (laughs) yeah like like if i bump of cocaine if i can just never do if i just stop drinking coffee but that allows me to like do mdma every once in a while that's cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh I think so the the alveoli get to this really thin point and then they also have capillaries surrounding them um, they, they look beautiful if you find a, mm. <laughs> a diagram. Um, and so the capillaries are spanning all over this thing so that the oxygen you breathe in fills up this little air sac and can then pass through 
into the bloodstream and the capillaries so that the red blood cell can suck it up. And the and membrane up, the membrane is so small, which allows that diffusion to happen. Yes, they're very they're single cells, but they're also very thinly stretched out. Yeah. Um and so I looked up like the some of the numbers for it just because I had to. And the the thing that we're dealing with here is partial pressure of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And the partial pressure just means like you have the overall pressure of whatever and partial pressure is the amount of that pressure that is made up by oxygen. Mm -hmm. And this is where you can get into, like you can talk about the chemistry of it like that, but then you can also literally get into the physics of it, of there's these molecules bouncing around and pressure just means you have so many molecules bouncing around that they're bouncing up against, you know, the edge of whatever. And so that's the pressure of it. Yeah. And so whenever you like breathe in air, you're breathing in a, a ton of different um, chemicals. Uh, the like composition of the atmospheric air is like what nitrogen is like mostly nitrogen. Yeah. Percent oxygens. Um, okay. I'm, I wrote the chart down just for what it is in your alveolar uh, air sacs. So yeah, what's oxygen twenty one, and then you CO two. I, I mean, forget. I I I I I had a chart. I don't didn't memorize it. Sorry. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's okay. That's just one mark on the test. Um, I know the the thing that's very interesting. Real quick, that like you know I I knew this, but then I didn't like face it too much. Um, whenever you're like breathing in and stuff, you're breathing in 10 times the amount of water as you are carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is so, so much lower than water. Like, <laughs> and you always think like breathing in water would mean drowning. No. Yeah. Well, uh, it's kind of necessary because your, yeah. your lungs evolved in an underwater environment. Um, it's, it's part of the reason why, uh, it's really bad to breathe in very, like take big gulps of breath in very arid, cold climates. Um, like your lungs need to be really wet on the inside and part of what like your mucosal membrane and your nose and all that stuff does is it tries to really increase the, if it's really dry outside as you breathe in, it's trying to increase the temperature and the humidity content of that air going into your body so that it's not too dry for your lungs because your lungs kind of want your your lungs are wet. They're they're wet organs that are supposed to be from underwater times. So yes. like it's it's not a thing that evolved like after we crawled out and we we're like, oh cool. Well, what are we gonna do to breathe now that we're out of water? I guess we'll have to come up with something. No, it's not like that. Yeah, it's um the the wetness allows the diffusion to happen uh so much better. I don't know if it's cuz it's like slows it down, you know, cuz in the gaseous form it's like bouncing around in air or whatever. Mm-hmm. So once it gets wet, it kind of like can like focus <laughs> on going to the lower concentration area or whatever. I wonder if it condenses it. Like have you ever seen Maybe. that um 
Did you ever do in high school the where you take a balloon that's full of air, like a long, narrow balloon, you know, like you make balloon animals out of, and then you mm-hmm. put that in, um, in um, what's it called, liquid nitrogen? Uh, no. Well, maybe. I so what happened, it, you like, remember. you take the balloon and you just dip the very one tip of it into your little jar of liquid nitrogen. And as it cools, um, the air on the inside of it, the air condenses as it goes, as it basically changes phase from being its gas phase and all the molecules turn into a liquid, like they're getting cold and still so they're becoming a liquid so the balloon actually crumples all up real small like in your hand but then if you just take if you just set it on the counter for a second and let it warm back up all of a sudden all the air returns back to its gas stage you didn't lose any air out of the balloon you just changed the phase of it by changing the temperature so i wonder if it has something to do with like you need it to be warmer if it's going to be more active in order to do the diffusion. Because if it's cold air, then it doesn't move. <laughs> yeah. And coldness would probably also um, harm some of that gas transfer and everything. Yeah. You don't want to be cooling yourself down too much. Um, yeah. This, you know, it all comes back to homeostasis. Yeah. Um so the the thing though that's like important for this concentration diffusion whatever stuff going on is the partial pressure of oxygen whenever you breathe it in once it's in your alveoli the partial pressure is 104 millimeters of mercury which is you know such a ridiculous um <laughs> measurement system but it's it how, how hard <laughs> like yeah if you have a thing of mercury like how much pressure do you need to push it up 104 millimeters that's it's pretty easy to understand i don't know what you're why is everyone so hard for everyone to understand millimeters of mercury so it like sounds like so much witchcraft (laughs) (laughs) i'll move the liquid metal (laughs) yes Um, i i how much do i weigh oh the the mass of four foxes pulling pulling us a sled of boulders Yeah, that's it. That's what. Okay, cool. Yeah, where in England they use stone to measure their own weight? Where does that come from? I what 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 the king's stone was? What got to decide who decided what the stone was? Yeah, and how how many? Yeah, the same with the foot. All that's all that shit. Stupid arbitrary uh, measurements. And the carbon dioxide in your alveolar air is forty-seven. Uh, millimeters of mercury and what is going on here is the the concentrations of like co2 and oxygen on the opposite side so like in your blood is pretty much opposite Mm -hmm. it's like around um i think like 40 millimeters of mercury in your bloodstream is oxygen so 104 to 40 is a pretty big gap and that's going to cause it the oxygen to want to go fill that area up um and balance it out and then the same with co2 um co2 is a weird one though because at your like muscles whenever you go through the cellular respiration you co2 is like the waste product at the end of the electron transport chain Mm -hmm. and so you 
expel the CO2. Um, I have a little nifty chart here that told me um, five to nine percent of the CO2 uh, is dissolved in the blood, um, like in the in the plasma. Twenty mm-hmm. percent um, is bound to hemoglobin. So hemoglobin is the protein in your red blood cells that has an iron molecule inside of four groups of subunit proteins. Um, so there's four oxygen molecules that can fit to each hemoglobin. Uh, and uh, oxygen binds to it. What's up? I was going to say, it, it's got to get that first oxygen molecule before it wants any more. It's not like yes. it just takes four right away. Like hemoglobin's like, constantly kind of in this shape change depending on yes. who's hanging out around him <laughs> that's the the you know this is where it becomes very important to understand that proteins change shapes whenever stuff is bound to them because that first oxygen like hemoglobin's kind of closed and the oxygen has to fit in a specific way which is why i always love the you know shapes of molecules actually matters yeah, when it yeah. comes to the scale um it can fit in a certain way and then bind, and that kind of opens up the rest of the hemoglobin to a second one, then a third one, and a fourth. Um, well, CO2 also binds to hemoglobin, and it binds in a different spot. So whenever like your red blood cell gets to uh, active tissue that is expelling CO2, so like you're working out, it gets to your bicep, um, you know, because you're doing just vanity vanity exercises yeah building strength. I, I like i like that your your example of this is vanity exercises not like the usual example so when you're running from prey on the savannah <laughs> <laughs> and your brain's like oh man we're giving too much oxygenated blood to the stomach to digest the food we need to get more oxygenated blood to the legs because they're starting to get sore and if we if we slow down at all that cheat is gonna fucking catch us <laughs> Listen, i live in california you know talk about what you know <laughs> Um, so the, the CO2 binds to the hemoglobin and in a different spot and by binding to the hemoglobin, it changes the shape, which allows the oxygen to easily pop off. Um, and that oxygen can then, because it's at like a hundred millimeters of mercury in the oxygenated blood and is at like 40 in the cell, it flows into that active cell uh, through diffusion again. Given that, um, given that muscle the fuel, the fuel it needs yes. to keep working. And so 20% of the CO2 is bound to that. And then 70% is a chemically modified form of CO2. And that happens in the red blood cell. The CO2 enters the red blood cell. And, oh boy. Why did I talk about this in reverse? Um, the <laughs> diagram I'm looking at is talking about the CO2 flowing into an exhalation, but we'll just flip all these arrows. So CO2 goes into the red blood cell and uh, combines with water to then form, uh, boy, I'm going to screw this up, but it forms H2CO3, um, which then causes the... Uh, proton the hydrogen ion to pop off so you have a positive uh, proton there and then you have a negative bicarbonate ion so that's hco3 uh, minus and that then switches with chlorine um, through the red blood cell 
so that the the charge it remains the same a chloride uh sorry so it's a negative as well and you have just uh hco3 bicarbonate ions just floating through your plasma and that's actually how the majority 70 percent of your co2 leaves your body is like in this chemical <laughs> just soup in mm-hmm. your plasma um and then once it gets to the alveoli it then switches back with uh Uh, chloride so it goes back into the red blood cell and combines with the hydrogen proton that's still there to form h2co3 which then goes through a carbonic anhydrase um quick reaction that has your water and co2 so that's why when you on a mirror you can see water vapor on it Mm -hmm. um because you got to be wet on the inside guys we got to always be lubed up inside and so I think the the thing with like understanding, well, you know, everybody knows hemoglobin is uh, attracted to oxygen or oxygen is attracted to hemoglobin, however you want to call it. Um, so why does it like pop off and why is it so easy for the oxygen to just be like, well, I'm, you know, bound to this protein, but there's less of me over there. So I want to go to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a binary state. Hemoglobin is not a just oxyphilic thing that it only just like a magnet draws oxygen to it. It's, it's not, it's not an on off type of binary state. Yeah. It's, it's something that like this hemoglobin has various things that interact with it. Um, and I already mentioned CO2 binds to it and changes the shape so oxygen can pop off. Um, interestingly, though, heat also causes hemoglobin to release more oxygen. It becomes way more loose, which makes sense. Um, but this is like literally the thing that allows your body to deliver oxygen to where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. It's not a it, your brain's not saying I need more blood. I mean, it kind of is, but. I need more blood, more oxygen to go to uh, my bicep. Well, that is all well and good that it can pump more blood and tell your heart to speed up or whatever. But getting the oxygen to pop off means you have to have all these things go right so that more oxygen can be delivered to the muscle. And that's where the CO2 from the muscle working out and causing more CO2 to be released and the heat from being you know, triggering the actin and, um, uh, whatever. I'll, I'll take that out. I don't need to have, I can't screw up biology on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you're this. good. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what the other, the other protein is in your muscle. Um, and so heat actually causes hemoglobin once it reaches 43 degrees Celsius and your body temperature normally is 37 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Um, it releases 20% more oxygen. Like it's way easier to just release it um, from that protein, which is, you know, very useful. I guess if you're um, in a survival <laughs> situation where you're, you're, you're having a crazy body fever, like how else, how does yeah. it get that high, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think around 43C, you'd be, uh, you'd want to go to a hospital. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's once it gets like up to that, you're, you know, this is why you feel bad because you're like, your blood's not holding on to oxygen. Like, you know, 
that's part of the problem is you just got too much oxygen and you feel like out of whack. Um, that's literally the, the reason you feel sick is like all this kind of stuff going on. Um, and so the other thing is, uh, because you have like that proton popping off, um, that's causing things to become more acidic in the blood, Mm -hmm. uh, because you have way more protons. So it's a lower pH and that causes, uh, again, the hemoglobin to like relax because it's got way too much, um, positivity around it. So it, it, you know, chills out and releases more oxygen. Um, lower pH also signals the brain, uh, to contract and, uh, like contract the breathing muscles in order to have deeper breaths and more frequent breaths, uh, so that it can get rid of the higher concentration of CO2 because the high acidity is associated with CO2. This is like when, I mean, this is months ago, but you were describing like, um, why sodas are so bad. Yeah. It's because you, it's so much acidity in a soda because you have CO2 in there, which just goes through this natural chemical change to become this like, um, proton bouncing around and then this negative bicarbonate. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, that's like kind of the, the basics of like hemoglobin and why it, it does all of this stuff, like why it is important to the respiratory system and lungs in general, because all of this stuff works in concert in a way that essentially your, your lungs are just supplying a ton of oxygen and getting rid of a ton of CO2. Um, but it works on this small scale at such an efficient rate that that can then do anything like lungs are called like a bulk flow, but you can't, you couldn't fire hose oxygen to your muscle tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just the whole, the whole nervous system aspect of it that allows you to just have this involuntary, huge muscle reaction in or because you don't have any (laughs) there's no muscles in the organs there's no there's nothing that that caught that like sucks the air it's not like uh anything it's it's your diaphragm and your rib cage muscles that are squeezing and then relaxing and squeezing and relaxing and you can think act this it's another weird thing where you can actively think about contracting those muscles and cause it to happen but it all it automatically causes it to happen but then that also causes the really fucked up sensation in your mind especially if you're stoned or on psychedelics where you start to think oh crap i've just started thinking about breathing now if i stop thinking about it <laughs> am i going to stop breathing cuz i kind of have I've started to believe that now I've been reminding myself to take a breath every 15 seconds. And if I stop doing that and I don't have the conscious experience anymore, will my body remember to just keep doing this? Do you know why that happens? Is it because you have, you're forming new connections in your brain and it's connecting to that part or is it just like a, like consciousness? Like I I think it's probably more of a consciousness kind of paranoia thing. That's, um, it's exciting your different uh, lizard brain fight or flight type of responses. That's gonna that then like 
manifests as anxiety and other types of other types of things more than it's like you're getting a new pathway and your brain's like, oh shit, I don't know what to do. I'm fucking stone. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how to breathe anymore. Uh, but it's, it is one of those things though, where like, um, you can't think about your heartbeat and like make your heartbeat, you know, but breathing yeah. is an involuntary, also voluntary reaction. It's a very strange type of thing where like, uh, only there's there's not that many things like that in in the human body where you can do both do both with it yeah i mean the the heart is a weird one because it has so much signaling from your brain but then also the muscle tissue in your heart literally has electrical charges that cause it yeah like it's it's a weird one um so i don't like it it's too confusing (laughs) the the way it's striated too it's like it's like a like a Y instead of just a nice clean line. It's a bad like design. I've always said it's bad design. It's yeah, poor design. What about what Not about the uh, the other cool things? Just like physiologically about the lungs, that they're not a pair of two identical things that are just like you know, like your arms. You know, that are your arms are a pair of. Uh, thin bony appendages that were off of these tetrapod fish that that were like lung fish um and they evolved on those fish as in pairs all of their limbs evolved in in these pairs and they had bony segments that connected to them so there is like part of the same thing like the evolutionary toolkit that starts all the way at the very beginning of the little pool with the right chemicals and right minerals in it that gets zapped with the right amount of electricity that starts life. Like we don't, we have a toolkit that makes it such that life has these sort of, uh, uh, this set of pairs of limbs and limb and, and things that grow equally on either sides of the body and things like that, all the way to our fish ancestors, to the things that become the insects and arthropods and everything. Like we don't, there's not like stuff that evolves where it's just like, oh, this thing has six legs on one side of its body and then just one weird arm on the other side of its body. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But lungs are not like that, even though they do occupy the two like, halves of our body and they like seem to be split right down the middle they're not like that your your left lung is smaller than your right lung your right lung can do a whole lot more capacity wise than your left one does even the way that they're um segmented on the inside of the lungs is different uh your right lung has more chambers than your left lung does your left lung and your right lung both have a depression for your heart because they evolved like after the heart so they the heart was there and then they have to evolve basically a depression inside of them so so the heart could sit inside the rib cage on top of them um so there's just the just uh interesting aspects of evolution that show you the way that evolution has to work it doesn't get to like just say okay this organism was really cool now for the next one let's go back to the drawing board and like start from scratch and see how we could relay this out in a much more efficient cooler way like the reason why we are 
just a tangled mess of like vascular systems and nerves <laughs> that that are just just a horrible way of laying out any type of electrical system or any type of tube system for anything is our bodies is because that it all had to evolve over billions of years to make all the stuff fit the way that it fits now it didn't get to realign it at any point in time (laughs) yeah that's um if you want like a good description on it you can look up uh what's his name richard dawkins and Mount Improbable. Um, he describes it quite well with it's the evolution of the eyeball. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially there's the metaphor he uses is it's like a mountain evolution is, and you can only go up and sometimes it gets to like a certain peak and that's not the top peak, but you can't go back down to then go back up to form a better model or whatever you, you get stuck with these things. Um, which, you know, goes back to like the, where I've spoken about before with evolution, like wolves are highly specialized for things. And that's why they've evolved so many different times yeah, uh, over the course of, you know, time because they get to the specialized thing, but they can't go back. You don't have like, like the wolves today are not from, you know, millions of years ago because those wolf looking things um then it go back down to looking like raccoons whereas you know raccoons <laughs> like those kinds of little cartoulies have been around forever like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they they're um generalized they're they're not specialized for anything they can do a whole lot of different stuff um so when you're looking at like organ systems you you keep that in mind whenever you're looking at it through an evolutionary lens yeah, and so these these ancient these ancient fish from you know these become what are the initial tetrapods that then become the first four legged walking uh, precursors to the dinosaurs. But these same bony fish and lung fish that were hanging out in the shallows um, when the the entire Earth lo- like oxygen content in the water dropped because of algae blooming um those don't just become the dinosaurs like that those that are like hanging around in the shallows kind of walking around on the tips of their fins in like a over a bunch of root systems and mucky uh brackish bottom water and stuff like that those become everything everything that ever is on land they they come out and they drag themselves around on their front appendages at first, you know, as the, as they develop. Because even, like, they have a full skeletal structure. These are bony fish. They're not cartilage fish. Um, but because they've, you know, evolved their body mass underwater, like, they can't just support themselves on land. So there's no, uh, there's not the evolution story of this fish just crawled out and suddenly was like, holy shit, I can breathe. I didn't realize that. If anything, it was the formation on these fishes where they had basically a relief valve that goes along with their gill system, but it moved closer to the tops of their heads rather than being on the sides of their heads behind their eyes by the back of their jawbone. And when it did that, it basically was a, you know, the precursor of what would come out of land, become a nostril, and then go back into the water and become a blowhole for a whale or a porpoise. 
But the the idea being that when you're losing oxygen content inside of the water, you have to go up to the surface and grab a gulp every once in a while of, of air because you can't just breathe through your gills in the water anymore. And so you have like 100 million years of these creatures that just take a gulp of air every once in a while and take a bigger gulp of air every once in a while. And the ones that are have better capacity for mutations that have given them better... Um, primitive lung systems can breathe for longer and last longer and can reproduce better than the ones that are stuck to only living on the bottom of the uh, on the bottoms and uh, so eventually you know as the waters are drying out you know you have a giant landmass forming this is like Pangea time so as Pangea is forming like we've talked about before like you're experiencing a ton of water loss on the planet because you have no uh, no freshwater areas that are between continents, no ocean currents that are keeping lots of different life moving around. Everything is just hanging out in these like shallow edges around the border of the giant continent because there's no there's not really a big opportunity for diversity of life out in the depths of a massive ocean that has no other landmass around it that's making up over three quarters of the planet. Um, so all the life's hanging out in these shallow areas, and then maybe where some places in the big piece of supercontinent where there's there were some lakes and swampy lands and ponds that are drying up and so as they're drying up you know these creatures they're having to like build up more muscle uh, integrity to hold up the skeletal structure that they're maintaining and they come out and they become the 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 dinosaurs they become the lizards they become the birds they become all the mammals they become everything and then they go back into the water and become the whales and the dolphins again yeah, it. I mean, you can, like, literally, as we were just describing, like, th- imagine the evolution of it, that the ones that were able to take in more efficient gulps of air um, were then able to supply as much oxygen as they needed, so then their bones could grow bigger and their muscles could get bigger to support those bones. Like, it just, I don't know. It's always hard, like once you you know have evolution make sense for it to not make sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it yeah, just yeah. Makes so much sense. Yeah, once once you once there's the there's the step by step process, and and for discovering this stuff, it's not like oh wow, we just found a bunch of four hundred million year old fossils that show the exact organ structure of all these lungfish and bony fish and early tetrapods and stuff like that that can show exactly step by step how this happened uh, you know by the millennia. Um, that's not you, that's not the way the fossil record works. There are still existing um, direct relatives of these uh, bony fish, lungfish, um, and that are still alive today so you can look at kind of their anatomy and work backwards towards what the fossil record shows the other issue is that just like fossils from that time it's tough like they were bony fish but the bones are kind of all that you get you don't get a bunch of fossilized organs um hardly ever so you're having to go off the skeletal structure and look at the jaw bones and see, okay, this is where the soft cartilage tissue, this is where the organs had the spot to be housed. And then when you compare that to their more 
modern ancestors that are still alive that have very similar body structures still, you can see, okay, I can see exactly where this air sac existed. I can see, you, you know, you can make those kind of um, connections, but mostly because they can do that through genetics. They can take a living current lungfish and work back because it still has all of the genetic baggage from going all the way back to its initial ancestor. So you can see how that works in other animals that it's related to in its evolutionary tree branch, how that's related to the genetics that exist in us and in other mammals that that um, also relate back to the early earliest lungfish. And you can tie the, the genetic mapping and the genetic history back with the evidence-based history that you have of the fossil record and the biological awareness that you have of the living creatures and put the entire piece together for the evolutionary story without having to have a specific smoking gun fossil for every single stage that happens along the way. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned like jawbones and jawbones are a huge um, piece of the puzzle because they, you know, change shapes and turn into ears and all that kind of stuff. Jawbones are tough to memorize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You think, yeah, The if, if anyone's ever like, oh, so you know, and then gills turned into lungs and, uh, and that's how we breathe. <laughs> now, now you can say, no, that's not how it happened because the gills and lungs were at the same time. And if anything, the gills became the ears and we don't breathe with our ears, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> You might be not, one of those. On purpose. You might be one of those guys that can take a deep breath and it wiggles your ears, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not some weird evolutionary freak. Uh, I can move my ears, but I was bored on a plane one time when I was a kid, and uh, just worked on it. Oh, cool! Like, uh, like when a paraplegic moves his big toe for the first time in a long time. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you just so. think about it I really think- hard. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking like, you know, if I open my mouth really big, then my I feel my ears move. So let's just, for the next two hours, <laughs> let's concentrate on uh, closing in on this muscle. Um, yeah. Now I can move them one at a time. So Cool. You're almost, you get them to flap and you could fly like Dumbo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my ears aren't that big. No, though. I'm not saying you I've have big ears. I've been small, like, small ears. The, 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 I think the more the impressive thing about Dumbo is not that he had big ears because everyone said he had big ears, but the fact that he could control them independently of each other in an aerodynamic fashion that allowed him to fly. That's really the, that's really the amazing part. Yeah. It was a cartoon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the other thing I wanted to touch on real quick was like a collapsed lung. Okay. Um, and uh, I'll try to speed through this a little bit, but um, it's something that, like, you know, people experience. It's kind of common. Like, you know, people will have collapsed lung. Not everybody will, but like you might. I don't actually, you know, now that I think about it, I don't know if I know anyone who's had a collapsed lung, uh, but it can happen. And I knew a uh, girl in main- my driver's ed class and she smoked cigarettes, but she said it was OK because she had one good lung. <laughs> Wait, is it had one of them collapsed before? Yeah, or yeah, it was, or is permanently collapsed. That's weird. Um, I wonder why they didn't get that fixed. Because I think, anyways, 
did she think the tar was just going into the bad lung? Because it's not. I, I don't. You know, we're all fifteen. Okay. She also told us she didn't have a gag reflex, so I don't know. She's yeah. she's one of those cool cool type of girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, best friends with had a smashing pumpkins lunchbox. <laughs> okay, it, it the pictures becoming ever more clear. <laughs> um, so a collapsed lung is uh literally whenever a lung collapses and those air sacs because your lung is very spongy. But because of those air sacs, it is inflated. You can think of it that way. Um, and it gets squished down into, you know, a little ball um, that's, you know, you're not having oxygen exchange going on in there and everything. Um, which makes me wonder what a collapsed lungs like capillaries do. Are they like busted up for a while and they got to reform? I don't know. Or do they get so, do they get so small Maybe they get so small that like there's no way blood uh, a blood cell could get inside of it. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, then a collapsed lung, you would have a a stroke of the lungs. Yeah, probably, uh, which doesn't sound fun. But the the collapsed lung happens whenever air uh, or the pressure. So you know, we you mentioned diaphragm and the intercostal muscles, the muscles in between your ribs that. Um, whenever they contract, your diaphragm pulls down and those intercostal muscles like kind of pull your rib cage out. And that's just causing a negative pressure on the cavity that houses your lungs, um, like the pleural cavity. So it kind of sucks it out so that then air can flow in. Mm-hmm. Um, and a collapsed lung is whenever that cavity, um, has a higher pressure than it is supposed to. There's like this, you know, negative pressure all the time so that your lungs are like sticking up against your ribs essentially um, so that it's easier for them to inflate and everything. Well, the if you have air build up or, you know, it could be fluid, um, in between your lungs and that cavity uh, wall, like where your ribs are and everything, then it's going to cause the the whatever the lung to start to collapse down and get all balled up now the these can occur from you know obviously gunshot to the chest knife to the chest that'll do it yeah um you can have like a rib fracture yeah broken rib that's the one that i hear about most often is like your your rib punctures your lung yes in like Um, a car accident when you hit the steering wheel or whatever yeah, and whenever, you know, that happens, it's not puncturing like the, you know, everyone says puncture the lung, but it's not like, even if it does puncture the lung, that's not the bad part because you got plenty of little <clears throat> alveoli for air to still go to. It's because that cavity has then been popped mm-hmm. and it can then start to collapse the lung. Um, the reason I found it so interesting is back when I was taking human physiology in college, um, I've mentioned them before, but my professor had worked uh, ER in Dallas hospitals. And so he would always describe everything to us in like an ER context. So, you know, if somebody comes in with a gunshot wound to the chest or a, or a knife wound, um, they're going to probably have a collapsed lung because there's that cavity has been burst open. So then every time they breathe in the diaphragm is pulling down and the intercostal muscles are still 
pulling out. So it's sucking air in. It's it's called like a sucking chest wound. Mm-hmm. Um, and air is filling that half of the area, which is then putting more pressure on the lung. The lung is not able to inflate. Yep. And um, I was looking up different ways to treat it. Um, this is going to be I, fun. So <laughs> the, the thing that um, I found uh, interesting, and I wish I remembered which lung it is, um, so if we have any like doctors uh, or EMTs listening that could like tell me which lung it is, I would love to know because I was racking my brain for eight hours yesterday trying to remember. Um, but he would say whenever one of those patients would come to the ER, they would immediately stick a hose into, I think it was their left side. Um, and that is before checking which side the wound is on just trying to equalize the pressure in the cavity yeah well yeah they're trying to reinflate the lung reduce the amount of air that is in there and i think it was the left side um because the danger of having a collapsed lung is not that you're getting less oxygen uh, than you need that's you know bad but you can you can live with that it is that pressure is building up on your heart Mm -hmm. and causing those arteries and everything to get pushed over to the side. So that's why I think it was the left lung because that's more where your heart is situated and it's then going to be pushing up against the heart, literally causing um, blood to stop flowing through your body. So that's why like a chest wound is so dangerous um, because it'll kill you by the amount of pressure building up around your heart and allowing it to just not pump blood against that pressure. Um, and so he he said that they would always just stick a tube in there before even checking where the wound is because you need to make sure that that heart can keep pumping blood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're already stabbed once. I don't think they're really going to care if uh, you stab them a second time with, yeah, <laughs> with a yeah, tube yeah. in their chest. Um and then if it was the other half, then you would just take that tube out and stitch it up and then plug them in the other side. But that tube sucks out the air whenever they're exhaling and allows blood to flow through. Um, I found it kind of interesting, like the EMT approach to it is they'll find the wound wherever it is and they'll apply an occlusive dressing. So occlusion is like it doesn't allow the flow of air yeah, it's between airtight. things. So do they like super glue it or like what are they? <laughs> so they, I mean, I'd like super I glue and saran wrap. <laughs> the solution's great. Yeah. You can use like a plastic bag or whatever, especially if you're not an EMT. Um, very important stuff to learn, you know, as we go into this uh, fascist America, yeah, to yeah. how to you, <laughs> treat a chest wound. Everyone should know some triage. Um, they get like if they have all of their supplies, they get a uh one of those gauze that has like the petroleum jelly on it. Okay. They don't take the gauze off the wrapper. They include the wrapper. The occlusive part of this treatment is the wrapper it comes in. And they stick that down on the wound. Um the petroleum jelly helps make a seal, but you like stick it on there. And then they tape three sides of it. And they're like listening for, you know, 
the sound of like a collapsed lung that's like crackling mm-hmm. stuff, um, which I'm sure sounds lovely. And whenever they like it gets to a certain point, they will then burp the dressing, which is just whenever the person exhales, they like lift that yeah. one untaped side up so that blood and you have an exhaust hole come out of it because it's yeah. not going to come out of your mouth because <laughs> you don't no. have a way to force <laughs> the air out of your mouth <laughs> and um what's very interesting with like this treatment i mean you know you want to get to the er so they can definitely make sure you're going to survive but like you can reinflate a lung this way like because over time the negative pressure will keep like causing the lung to expand more and more and push more of that air out when you uh exhale like it'll kind of treat it eventually that's like what the chest tube is doing it's just sucking out the air um but i found it pretty interesting like the emt approach yeah no no that's it well the cool thing about it is that all of these approaches from a medical perspective are just physics approaches (laughs) like they're really not concerned about like the the chemistry or anything else going on at this point at that point when they're addressed with that injury they're just like okay we're gonna do a physics experiment (laughs) based upon pressure and this is how we're gonna do it yeah um one of the first times i hung out with chuck our good doctor friend chuck um he gave us that quiz at a at an after dinner drinking place. It was a bunch of guys just hanging around. He's like, "Okay, guys, got a collapsed lung. What's the first thing you're supposed to do?" You know, and everyone's at the table going around saying, "What would I do?" And, that, and that's that's what I said. Is like, first thing you do is you you stub a you stub a hose right in the center of that person's chest to, to equalize the pressure, right? Because you know you'd seen it on some TV shows or whatever. And he's like, "Yeah," and he explained how you do it in the side and all this stuff it's it's fascinating how but it's just fascinating that the the mechanism that we use to get oxygen to be able to have the fuel that runs our bodies is totally relied relying on a mechanical system that is based upon involuntary physics for the most part when it comes to pressure exchange (laughs) yes yeah It's that's why like, you know, it's so great to learn all these different aspects of science because you can then be like, like it all makes way more sense and you don't have to be like, well, why does that happen? <laughs> like it's it's great that it just works that way. Yeah. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, but this takes away the magic of of life. You know, if you learn all these secrets, it's not magical anymore. And it's which I say this just makes it cooler to me. Like, yeah, learn learning the stuff is, and understanding the stuff is way cooler than uh the auspice of some magical thing that makes it work and and you know like having that you know uh strange unknown mystery out there like somehow makes life special i'm i'm entirely the opposite (laughs) yeah yeah i it does make it so much cooler <laughs> knowing all this stuff. This is what makes it interesting. Like it's not right. interesting if someone just said, "Oh, well, I put a magic spell over you and so it works." Cuz it wouldn't work any other way unless, you know, it's this magic spell. It's like Yeah, if you look at a magic trick, it's like frustrating if you don't know how it's going on. Right. It, to me at least. Yeah, it's 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 more irritating to get the non-answer that um, oh yeah, you know, it's, it was just some magic beans and a couple incantations of the right words and, you know, it just happens. It all works. Just believe. 
Uh, why why don't you want to why don't you want to live in a world of youthful wonder of of magic? <laughs> Cuz I'm 31. <laughs> I'm I didn't an adult. wasn't even into it back then, guys. Sorry. But yeah. maybe we're just broken. <laughs> All right. Well, great job, Eric. I th- I felt like you you escorted us through that very well. I spoke too much. My apologies. <laughs> you know, it was, it was your time, your turn to get some off your chest. <laughs> get it? Because are out of your out of your chest. Yes, through that sucking wound. <laughs> All right, man. Until next week. Bye.